This week is Valentine's Day. In case you forgot, it's on Thursday, so you have a couple days, guys, to call 1-800-PRO-FLOWERS and get your delivery on time of overpriced flowers and candy. As we head into Valentine's Day, um, we think about love and about relationships, and we want to start a new series today um, called Rethinking Sexuality. Um, And the reason it's called Rethinking is because we all have some rethinking that we need to do. And we're going to, over the next few weeks, just kind of walk through what does God say and what does it look like and what does God say about uh, how he has created us and how he has designed us. But the journey can be lonely and it can be terrifying. Some folks deal with shame from choices that they've made or struggles that they have. Or maybe there's some confusion. What does God really say? Uh, Maybe some of you feel despair. You're watching a loved one trapped in some kind of addiction or there's conflict between husbands and wives and parents and kids and all those uh, things that go on with it. Sexuality is a tremendous gift from God. We rarely see it as a gift. It's twisted and tainted from culture and from personal experiences. And no aspect of humanity, no aspect and part of who we are as humans causes more pain than sexuality. That's why we need to rethink it. And Christianity, unfortunately, has not represented a safe place for people to find help. Everybody seems to be talking about it except for in the church. We've had a long history of avoiding it and mishandling topics of sexuality. We simply don't talk about sex addiction, sex abuse, sexual dysfunction. We left people to figure it out for themselves or from modern psychology or from the talk shows or from the tabloids, or from the movies, or from all the other places where we get the messages that come in. And when the church has addressed it, it's often been from a judgmental, condemning tone. And we all we seem to do is we want teenagers to stay virgins, and we want to expose everybody's sexual sins, and we have just not been good about handling this topic. We've divided people into virgins and sinners, the sexually whole, and the sexually broken. And if you don't make the cut, well, too bad for you. We want to wipe our hands and push you to the side. If you were in the wrong category, the church is the last place that you would seek help. And as we come off a series on multiply and how we can increase the kingdom, the Christian view of sexuality contributes to human flourishing but we've not been able to communicate a compelling vision of God's design. All we've been able to communicate is judgmentalism and don't do this and don't do that and God hates sex. But in our effort to communicate to the culture, we need to understand, and so that's why we are rethinking. That's why we need to go back. You see, culture seems to offer a more consisting and more compelling guide than the church. Ask Christians about topics such as sexual orientation, cohabitation, sexual healing, and you're often met with blank stares. I don't know what to say. Or embarrassment. Or conflicting statements of what the Bible actually says. And the world is watching and they're laughing. They look at the Christians who can't get their act together. We worship all supposedly the same God, and yet one group says one thing and one group says another, and the world's looking at us and says, you people are crazy. You all say, you all claim to worship Jesus, but you're giving contradictory messages at at some points. You see, it's, it's not a problem to be solved. It's a territory to be reclaimed. We never 
combat confusion by ignoring issues of pornography and premarital sex and same-sex attraction and sex trafficking and sexual abuse and sexual harassment, right? Each of these is a byproduct of a larger tragedy. And the larger tragedy is this. We don't understand sexuality within the context of the Christian narrative and what Jesus is calling us to do when he says, follow me. Philip Yancey says this, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive approach to sexuality. Christians have allowed the world to define sexual brokenness. We've allowed the world to define sexuality. We've allowed the world to define sexual wholeness. And it's time we take it back. It's time that we offer a compelling vision of what God has done and what God says in his word. More people seek truth from secular psychologists and mental health counselors than they do from Christians and from Christian leaders and from God's word. Listen, we worship a God who has created sex for a purpose and he has communicated his design both in creation and in his word. The two important Parts are creation and his word. You and I are embodied beings. We are not just souls that are exiled from heaven and we're trapped in these bodies and I can't wait to get out of this body and get back to heaven. Do you know what's going to happen? You're going to get your body back someday. The goal is not heaven. The goal is the restoration of all things. The goal is the restoration of heaven and earth and your body and my body. Everything we see is going to be restored. Do you know what time it'll be one minute after Jesus returns? One minute after Jesus returns, we are still going to be embodied beings. And so how God has created us and designed us in these bodies is, is important and it matters. First Peter, or Second Peter says this, his divine power, this is on your notes, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Everything we need to live a life of godliness is found in Jesus. And this includes our sexuality. Sociologists Mark Rangeris and Jeremy Euchre said this. American parents just can't bring themselves to have an ongoing dialogue about sexuality with their teenager or young adult children. Parents much prefer a don't ask, don't tell policy. We hope our kids won't ask us about what we did so we won't have to tell them. And in return, we won't ask them about what they're doing. And it's not helping anyone. It's not just parents, but even within the church. It's a don't ask, don't tell policy. And don't ask, and I won't tell. And we've allowed it to go on for too long. These conversations are happening everywhere except in the church. They're happening everywhere in the world. Social media and media, and every place except where we can get the groundedness in God for how he has created us. You see, our silence communicates that God must be indifferent, or that he doesn't care, or that God's somehow too holy to care about sexual temptations, sexual pain, sexual memories, or sexual shame. And so when we don't talk about it, we communicate, well, God doesn't really care. God cares about every other aspect of your life. He wants your faith and he wants your obedience. But no, he doesn't care about that. Why? Because we never talk about it. And people silently struggle because we are silent. Do you know the Bible is, is a quite of a sexual book? There's an explicit endorsement of pleasure in marriage in the Song of Songs. It refers to prostitution. 
incest and orgies. There's instruction on avoiding sexual immorality. Paul's, uh, the parental teaching on how to steward sexuality, Proverbs 5. There's hope and healing for sexual brokenness. There's detour, detailed metaphors of spiritual adultery and prostitution. Just read the book of Hosea. The Bible is a very sexual book because it's part of who we are as God's creatures. But sex education isn't enough. And so what we've done is we said, okay, we need to talk about it. So let's get the youth group together and we're going to do a five-week course. And whew, we got through that. And now let's not ever go back to it again. Now, let me ask you something. When does a five-week course ever change your life? It doesn't. It, it, it doesn't just run it through the thing, right? Uh, sometimes 12 years of, of education doesn't change our lives, right? Let alone, let alone a five-week course. And so, uh, right, we, we, uh, we uh, think we're the expert. We read the stats. We, we uh, do the thing. And then all of a sudden, we can pass the test. We know how to spit out the answers. But we can't explain the larger issues. Why does God care about sex in the first place? Historically, we've had a list of, two, of do's and don'ts in the church, right? Do this. And don't do this. And those who obeyed the list were seen as morally superior than the spiritually inferior ones who did not obey. And so in the church, we've done this thing where we said, well, you are, you are a good girl or a good boy, right? But all those others are heathens and they're all sinners out there. And so we focused, but we've neglected some other sexual sins, such as using, using sex to control or manipulate your spouse. Do you know there are some cultures where that's expected, that the husband controls the wife in whatever he says and whatever he wants? That is sexual sin. But we've not addressed it. We've not given a holistic view of what God says. The sexual crisis is not, listen, it's not the LGBTQ ABC agenda. The, it's, a, it's a greater challenge, and the greater challenge is this. It's embracing God's design for our sexuality. More and more evidence that the purity movement doesn't work. Years ago, there was a thing called True Love Waits, and some of you may have heard of that, some of you may have gone through that. And so you go through the course, and you get a ring, and the ring says, uh, you save sex for marriage, and we make a pledge, and we say, I'm not going to have sex until I get married, right? And so here's what happened with that. It created legalists, and the legalists said, well, look at me. I am such a good person because I got the ring, and I'm saving it, right? But at the same time, their heart could be rotten. They could be lusting on the inside. I'm just not doing the thing on the outside, but oh boy, if you could see what's going on the inside. And so we told young people, we said, you save sex for marriage and it's going to be wonderful. And you know what? That promise doesn't always deliver. We said, you save sex for marriage and there's going to be fireworks and you're going to be sailing on the love boat and you find yourself in a canoe without a paddle. And you're like, wait a minute, this, I was promised something. And it didn't deliver. And so, God, you let me down. This was from an article on The Federalist from a, a, a woman who had gone through that. She said this, Sexual purity is often something that is talked about as an asset that is lost upon getting married, thereby conflating purity with virginity, which led to rape victims being told they were impure. In reality, we are called to be sexually pure both inside and outside marriage. The movement also employs a form of prosperity gospel using the promise of amazing marital sex, which they claim is a biblical promise, as though it was a proverbial carrot dangled in front of youth to incentivize waiting. The movement holds a heavy Gnostic influence. 
Gnosticism says all flesh is evil, only the spirit is good. It holds a heavy Gnostic influence. That is the idea that the material body is bad and thus paints a picture contrary to Song of Songs about sex, a double-minded endeavor given the prosperity gospel promise. She says, as my friend Nick Nick Peters is fond of quoting from his experience with the movement, sex is dirty, so you should save it for someone you love. (laughs) Right? That's the message. Sex is dirty. Don't do it. Save it for marriage and save it for somebody you love. And so then what happened is we created all these legalists. How far is too far? Physically and emotionally, right? We can get, what can we get away with and still call ourselves pure? Article goes on, in light of that backdrop, purity culture sought to create a set of modern day pharisaical rules and twisted scripture out of context to justify this. We were so scared that we, we just create all these legalists and hearts were not changed. And that's why we need to rethink it. Listen, the goal, the goal is not to avoid premarital or extramarital sexual activity, but to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and sexuality, right? And so Jesus in Mark chapter 12 was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the most important is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, right? And so that's the, the goal is to love God with everything we have. Love is the great motivator. It's not the rules. It's not saying you're in and you're out. I just, I love God with everything that I am. And guess what? I want to I do the right thing. Tell our kids and tell our, 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 what the, the people we influence in our lives. You would love God with everything you have. That includes your body too. Not just your mind, not just your heart. Listen, you can't love God apart from your body. You are an embodied being. Your, your body matters. This flesh matters. This, this, the, the, the muscle and bone that you have matters to God because he created it. You are an embodied being. And we are to, uh, we are to love God with all of that. We talk about discipleship. What's discipleship? Discipleship is a disciple is simply a learner. But the world has actually achieved discipleship when it comes in the terms of sexuality. The world has has far more discipled us than we would like to admit. I mean all of us. We all have to rethink. We are all holding to something that is not how God has created it or his words. We all are. That's why we need to rethink it. Right? We've shifted from the traditional sexual ethic to the everything goes of today. The sexual revolution that began in the 1960s has created far more disciples than we ever have when it comes to the area of sexuality. It's really grounded in a postmodern view of humanism. And here's what the postmodern view of humanism says. We throw off all external standards of truth. We throw off all external standards of right and wrong and any fixed ideas of right and wrong, and we can make it up for ourselves. And so that's where we hear things like, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. That, that may, that's, that, that's, that's your truth. We hear that in the Me Too movement all the time. What's her truth? Listen, there is no her truth. There is no his truth. There's just the truth. There's just what, what is. And so in our postmodern humanism, we say truth is relative. 
It's based on how I view it. It's all about the narrative. It's all about how I interpret it. No, listen, there is a, there is a reality that we have to deal with. I can have this great narrative that gravity doesn't exist. All I want. And I can step out of a second floor window, but guess what? My body is going to meet the reality of gravity. There, we live in an embodied world where there are things that are true. And even if you don't buy into the postmodern view, you might be surprised how much you're affected by it. What would make me happy? Right? That's the mantra of today. What does my gut tell me? Follow your heart. Those are not biblical. That's that postmodern world view. You just follow whatever feels right. You just follow whatever your heart is telling you. So entertainment, government programs, our educational systems, our role, model, our role models, our college campuses. There is a consistent message that sexuality is a personal choice and no one should limit your expression. Well, we see where that's gotten us. Because my personal choice may do violence to you. My gut may tell me to do something against you. So it's not enough to know what to think. But we have to know how following Jesus translates into real life decisions. You see, teens might understand that God wants them to save sex for marriage. But they don't understand why purity matters. Why did God even say that to begin with? And what if I've already made mistakes? Now what do I do? We need to understand there's an underlying spiritual importance to the implications of our sexuality. And so how does this broader message of the gospel impact our lives and our decisions and our discernment? We don't understand why our sexual worldview is a critical aspect of following Jesus. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer up. When's the last time somebody asked you that? How does your sexual worldview fit into following as a disciple of Jesus? Your sexual worldview. I didn't ask what you think is right and wrong. I asked, how do you view this? How do you explain it in the light of following Jesus? You see, in our lives, sex seems to be some random, disconnected problem rather than a holistic form of discipleship. We don't think of it as representing Christian maturity, or we don't think of it as an aspect of our faith, but it is. And so, conversations about sexuality are rooted in the desire to see people know the love of Jesus, and to follow him as the disciple. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and make virgins and heterosexuals. What did Jesus say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make what? What's that word? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe or obey everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Our goal is for people to be disciples of Jesus, not to obey a bunch of rules, because then when I follow Jesus, I am going to obey. But you see, I can teach one without the other. I can teach it's all about the rules without, without loving Jesus. But when I love Jesus, I'm going to want to follow the rules. So there's two reasons why we need to talk. <clears throat> we need to talk. This is the most, that, that time in every parent's life, right? We have to have the talk. Listen, we have to have the talk. We, we just do. Because people's lives are being ruined by the enemy. 
and we have been silent and we have been embarrassed and we are afraid to offer uh, hope and we are afraid to give the biblical answers because we've just ignored it and hope that it, that it goes away. Listen, the population of the world is nearing 7 billion. Sexuality has not gone away. It just hasn't. It's the only command in scripture that people do whether they're believers or not. Be fruitful and multiply. So the two reasons we have to talk about it, and today we're just setting the groundwork, and we're going to unpack this as we go through the weeks ahead for a couple of reasons. One is so that we are well-grounded in God's word, so that we can offer a compelling vision to those who even ridicule us. We are strangers in this land. We are, we are resident aliens passing through. And uh, yes, times are different, and times, uh, they are changing. But you know what? Good. It used to be you could not be a believer, but you could still hide out because everybody went to church. Now, the difference between the light and the dark is more pronounced than ever. I am more glad to be alive in 2019 than I am in 1989. Because back then, everybody was a Christian. Well, not really, but I got dressed up and I went to church. So we are not supposed to fit in. We are supposed to be different from the world. We are supposed to be looked at as weird. And if we're not looked at as weird by the world, we're not doing something right. We are accommodating. And so we need to be different. Two reasons we need to have the talk. Number one, hurting people need hope. John Piper said this, the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. He wrote this in reference to Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And I want you to turn there. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes and uh, he goes, uh, the Samaritans, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They didn't talk. They, They did not like each other. And in fact, now Jesus is talking to a woman. It's another no-no. And so Jesus, the woman came out uh, to draw water in John chapter 4, verse 7. And Jesus wanted a drink. And so she says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Don't you know that we're supposed to not like each other? We do this today. All the time. Between class and gender and race. We always, well, don't you know you're not supposed to be talking to me, Right? The world tells me you're not supposed to like me. But hey, I kind of like you. So there they are. They're talking. And so Jesus is like, hey, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that uh, you said, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And so they they get into this conversation. She's like, well, you know what? It'd be kind of nice to not have to come here every day and draw water. Wouldn't it be nice that like every time you opened your cupboard doors, there were groceries in there? You never had to go to the grocery store, right? You had living groceries. You just opened the door, and there they were. Refrigerator, boom, there it is, right? And so that's what she was doing. She's like, "Woo, that'd be great. I would never have to come back. And so they get in this conversation about living water, and Jesus loved her, and he wanted to give her this living water. And she steered the conversation toward theology. We're talking about living water and the depths of wells and the pH level of the water and all these kinds of things. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus goes to her sex life. Look in John chapter 4, verse 16. We have all these great conversations. These are all the nice Bible studies we do in church. They're all the topics we talk about in church. Living water and blessing and giving. And Jesus in John chapter 14, or John chapter 4, verse 16 says this. That's all great and good, but what about your sex life? Go call your husband, he told her, 
and come back here. Now, the word for husband could also be man, right? Go call your man, right? So the woman had five husbands, or she, she had five men in her life, right? And so it can be, so she, she had engaged in a series of illicit relationship, and she's not married to her current lover. And so Jesus, you know, they could have had all this flowery conversation, and she could have left. She's like, whoo, I love living water. She would have wrote some songs about living water. She would have wrote a book about living water. She would have done all this stuff. But no, Jesus loved her too much. And so he went right to her sex life. Why? Not to humiliate her. Because endless hours of theology about living water would not have changed her life. When did her life change? When Jesus went after her sex life. What she was doing, right? So they could have had all these hours of living water. And guess where she would have gone? Back home to her man. Back into the same situation that she found herself. When the conversation turned personal, her awareness of her need for healing and love became front and center. It got very personal, but when it got very personal, she suddenly realized, I need help. We've done that way too long in the church. We talk about all kinds of things, which are good things. But we don't get to where people need help, where they need uh, help for their hurting. People are looking for help from their addictions and their broken hearts. They want the living water. The world cannot give it to them. Russell Moore says this, The sexual revolution, if we're right about the universe, cannot keep its promises unhinged sexual utopianism can only go so far before it leaves the ground around it burned over like every other utopianism. We need to be ready, after all, to point a light toward older paths, toward water that can satisfy. The world promises something, but it never delivers. It says you do what you want, how you want it, with whomever you want, how many times you want. And every time there's always the same thing, hurt and brokenness and disillusion. And the only reason those things go away is because we become more calloused. They're just there. We just don't feel them like we did the first time. When life, listen, when life no longer works, people are open to the gospel. We need to be a fatted calf ready for people when they return home. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? What did he do? He went out, squandered his wealth in wild living. And when he came home, guess what happened? The dad killed the fatted calf. That needs to be us. We need to be fatted calf ready to uh, cook that baby up on the barbecue when somebody comes home from their brokenness. So the first reason is hurting people, they want hope. Now listen, remember, they don't always want it at the moment. But there will come a time, if they're honest, when it turns up empty, when they are frustrated, when they are feeling shame and guilt and remorse, and the gospel, Jesus will step right in. The second reason is this. The church needs to grow up. Now, grow up in a couple ways. The first is childish. We just need to grow up. When we talk about sexuality, it's, it's inevitably met with snickers and laughing and rolling eyeballs and disgust. We just need to grow up and kind of get over that. Can you imagine Jesus snickering? <laughs> She's living with the guy, it's not her husband. <laughs> rolling his eyes. 
discuss. No. So, so we need to grow up. We need to grow up in that way. We don't issue the handle. We don't uh, handle these issues in a mature, compassionate way. So discipleship means it means teaching people about what it means to follow Jesus. And because we haven't been taught to think biblically, we are immature in our understanding of God's design for this area in our lives. Most people have personal opinions, but few of those opinions are informed by the word of God revealed in creation and in scripture, right? So in Ephesians chapter 4, turn there real quick, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13, Paul says this. He talks about the importance of being mature. He says um, God has given to the church um, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So Paul says that we need to be growing up in our faith. What he says is, then we will no longer be little children, right? There's that childish aspect. We will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. The culture, listen, the culture is the, it's the winds of deceit, right? It's it, what's popular today won't be popular tomorrow, right? Today, the mob rule, but tomorrow you might be on the losing side, right? That's just how the world works. And Paul says, I want you to be so rooted and so grounded in your faith that you are not swayed by culture. You're not swayed about everything that comes down, that you are not, you're not over here today and over here tomorrow, but you're rooted. And how are we rooted? We are rooted in God's word. And we are rooted in Christ. We should be rooted in our faith and mature that we are not swayed by culture. Uh, sexual behavior of Christians is undistinguishable from that of the world. According to Barna, 41% believe that cohabitation is a good idea. More than 60% on a Christian dating site said they would have sex before marriage. 54% believe, 54 believe that homosexuality should be accepted rather than discouraged. And 1 Peter 2.9 says... You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Sexuality is a battle that we, a spiritual battle that we have been losing personally within the church and within our culture. We are losing because we don't know how to fight. Now, we may seem insignificant compared with this massive orchestrated effects of culture. But the topic has been isolated from our Christian experience. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is preparing the people to go into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, remember the greatest command that they asked Jesus? Well, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your, where? In your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. There are three crucial areas that Deuteronomy reminds us. The first thing is what? It's what we believe. That's, that's, it matters what we believe. As disciples of Jesus, we are not free to believe whatever we want to believe. We, we have opinions about everything. 
And we live in a world that says you can believe whatever you want to believe, which, which is, is true, right? I, I can believe that gravity is fake. It's fake news. I'm just going to walk out there, right? But then it hits reality. And so we are, as disciples of Jesus, we are not free just to make up stuff. <laughs> we are not in the fake news business. We are in the good news business. And so it's what we believe, how we live. Deuteronomy says, talk about them when? When you sit down, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. It's not a five-week sex ed course. It is a, it is a matter of living. It's a matter of, of, of life uh, teaching through life. And then it matters what we pass on. We are accountable for what we tell people, especially about spiritual matters. Those who teach will be judged more strictly, but that doesn't mean that nobody else will be judged. They're just going to be judged more strictly. You and I will also be judged for what we tell people that the Lord says is okay. So we have to know what we believe, it affects how we live, and then what we pass on. You see, when we speak the truth, what happens? People are set free. Lies always hold us in bondage. The enemy's tactic is to hold us in bondage through lies and deception and deceit. But Jesus said, you will know the truth. And what does the truth do? The truth sets you what? Tell me, church. Free. Right? People want hope. We want hope. We want to be set free. Russell Moore also says, our call is to engaged alienation. A Christianity that preserves the distinctiveness of our gospel while not retreating from our callings as neighbors and friends and citizens. We don't change the gospel. We cannot change God's word. We don't change what God said, but we still need to be in a, in a winsome way engaging and have a compelling vision that we can tell uh, people for what God desires for them rather than that's disgusting. Nobody ever got saved by being told they were disgusting. Nobody ever got saved by judgmentalism. Nobody ever got saved by the law. Well, we say, it's the gospel. It's the good news. And so there's relief when our passions and our pain are connected to God. Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis 1, you know, a wonderful creation. Genesis 2, creation of, of man and woman. Then Genesis 3, what did the serpent do? The serpent came and deceived them. And basically the deception is the same one we all wrestle with. Are you going to allow God to call the shots or do you want to be God? Remember the temptation was, Satan said, once you eat of the tree, God, then you will know good and evil and you will be like God. See, that's the, temp- that's the temptation for all of us. Either we're going to let God be God, or we are going to try to be God. We are going to define truth. We're going to make up our own rules. And Adam and Eve, so Adam and Eve, that's what they did. They said, we're going to take matters into our own hands and do it our way. And after they sinned, the Bible says they went and they hid and they covered themselves in their shame. And their shame now was related to what? To their nakedness. It was related to who they were. This beauty of creation now was distorted. It was now, it was now corrupted. And so we live in that world where the beauty of God's creation has been distorted and it has been corrupted. And we still want to call our own shots and say, God, that's okay. I kind of know better than you. I, I'm kind of going to do the thing I, that I want to do. And so what did God do? This is huge. 
God, when Adam and Eve sinned, did God, did God ignore them? Did God say, oh man, these kids are in big trouble. I'm just going to ignore them, pretend they're not here, right? I'm not going to talk about it. Did he avoid them? No. What did he do? In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, it says this. The Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? I want those words to be encouraging words to you today. Why? Because the gospel is about reconciling people with God. It's motivating them toward human flourishing and the human createdness. And so no matter where you are, I want you to hear God calling out and saying, where are you? Where are you? Maybe you've messed up. No, you have messed up. We have all messed up. There is no ifs or maybes about it. And yet God is a rescue mission God. He pursues us even in our sin. And he says, where are you? He wanted, yes, he wanted Adam and Eve to face up with their choice. And yes, there was a, the, you know, the, the, the uh, destruction of all of creation because of the fall. But God still comes to us and he says, where are you? I'm pursuing you even in your sexual choices. I am, I am pursuing you. You don't need to hide. You don't need to feel shame. You don't need to worry about your nakedness. God's like, I know all that. But, but where are you? Now listen, God doesn't ask a question because he's looking for information. He knows where we are. He wants us to know where we are because he knows where we are. And usually where we are is not where he wants us. And so he comes, he says, where are you? I've got a better life for you. I've got flourishing for you. I've got, I've got a life that the world cannot give you. You see, the devil works in two ways. One is through deception. You will surely not die. That was the deception. You eat the fruit and you will surely not die. It's always deception, right? It's always the, it's always the promise of something else. But the devil not only works by deception... Just do whatever you want. You're not going to die. There's no consequences. But he also works by accusation. Revelation 12, 10. It's he who accuses them day and night before our God. The devil wishes to assure some people that there's no need for repentance. And he wants to convince other people that there's no hope for mercy. Some people are deceived into thinking they are too good for the gospel while others are accused into thinking that they're too bad for the gospel. No one, Russell Moore says, no one is more pro-choice than the devil on the way into the abortion clinic, and no one is more pro-life than the devil on the way out of the abortion clinic. Let that sink in. That's what he does. He's come to steal and kill and destroy and he will deceive us into doing something, and then he will let us alone in shame and misery. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. He tempted them into doing something, and whatever was promised was never delivered. And where were they? They were hiding. But who took the initiative? It was God. God came along and he said, where are you? Where are you? You see, the gospel calls us to repentance and that 
that personal choice of the gospel is probably the most controversial today when it comes to sexual morality, right? We, we, we repent of all kinds of things. Uh, yeah, listen to the news of things we should repent of today, right? All kind, but never sexual morality. But the gospel also brings our sin out into the open. But listen, not the way the devil does. The gospel exposes our sin, not in order to condemn, but in order to reconcile. Why did Jesus go after the woman at the well sex life? Because he wanted her to be reconciled to the living water. He wanted her to be reconciled to God. He wanted her to be reconciled to the people around her. So the gospel, yes, it shines a light. And it says, this thing is sin. But I want you to be reconciled. You see the difference? Satan comes and says, look what you've done. You need to run. You need to hide. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness. But God says, where are you? I want to come to you. Where are you? You see, in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus says, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, again, I will trust in him. And again, he says, here I am with the children God gave me. The command to be fruitful and multiply, do you know, was really fulfilled by Jesus, the second Adam? The second Adam who did not hide in shame in a bush, but he hung on a cross so that we could be reconciled to God. And Jesus says in Hebrews, here, here, Lord, here I am and all the children that you've given me. Listen, everything is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who forgives. He's the one who, yes, exposes, but not in order to condemn, but in order to reconcile. Jesus said in John 4, 16, to the woman at the well, go call your husband. And we, listen church, we need to be John 3, 16 people in a John 4, 16 world. John 3, 16. God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son, right? Why? To condemn? No, to save. We need to be John 3.16 in a John 4.16 world where this woman had many men and was involved in all kinds of things. As we walk through the next weeks, the goal is to provide a compelling biblical vision for human sexuality, uh, for human flourishing, so that we can give a compelling vision, so that we can offer hope, so that we can hear the gospel, even in our own lives, that we don't have to hide. But God says, where are you? As we head into invitation time, uh, we're going to just take some time to pray, and then we'll stand and sing. So we're going to pass out some cards, and I want you to take a card, um, as we just play in the background, and it's just a little, it's just the little GPS thing, and with the question at the bottom. So here's what I want us to do over the next, next one minute. I just want you to allow God to say, where, where are you? Because wherever you're at is where you're at, right? We all want to be somewhere, but, but where you're at is where you're at. And so God came to Adam and Eve, and he asked that simple question, where, where are you? And just, just to be honest. And so we're just going to meditate. We're going we're gonna to just think about that question in our own lives, right? And so maybe some of, some of you need hope today. Some of you have been 
in that, in that hiding in that, that, that shame, guilt ridden place. You're just, you're just hiding out from God. And I want you to hear the voice of the Lord today. He's calling saying, where are you? I, I can pull, I can lead you out of that. I can bring you out of that. Listen, either we believe that Jesus forgives, either we believe there's a victory in Jesus, right? Or else we'll just, let's just go home. Either we believe the gospel makes a difference in all areas of life, not just in my faith and in my finances, but it also makes a difference in my sexuality and in those around me. Either, it either makes a difference there as well or it doesn't make a difference at all. So, so, so where are you? Would you just over the next few minutes as we pray, and I'm going to pray and then we're going to stand and sing, but just quietly in your own spirit, maybe offer those things to the Lord. That, Lord, I, I, I've not been compelled by a biblical vision of what I... You know what, Lord? If, if my friends asked me today, I would not know how to answer them. Why I believe what I do about sexuality. Would you just take a few moments quietly? And just hear the Lord call out, where are you? today and um, Lord, I'm just frustrated. The world has discipled our children. The world has discipled our parents, our grandparents. The world has discipled us since the beginning of time with lies about the goodness of your creation. Father, forgive us as your people for not having a compelling vision, a compelling worldview of why. Father, forgive us for being critical and judgmental. And Father, for not offering hope and compassion. We do in all other areas. And Father, somehow we bought into the enemy's lie just to forget about sexuality. Just leave that alone. It's, it's personal and it's private. And, and God, at the same time, the world has not let it be personal or private. It's, a, it's out front of everything we're taught. Father, would you instill in us as we walk over these next few weeks just to rethink, to develop a biblical worldview, that God, we would be a changed people God, there's not a person in this place today who has not made a mistake or have, has made bad choices. And not, not a one in this room today. Through our thoughts, through our actions, through misinformation, through our judgmentalism, through our hypocrisy, through living no different than the world. Father, through all of those ways, Father, there's not one of us in this room that doesn't need to rethink and to repent. We have all been discipled by the world in one way or another. God, would you give us a compelling vision for the kingdom? That we would be whole, healthy people in Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.